So in today's episode, we're going to be going over five questions I'd ask founders if I were a partner at A16Z. So if you haven't listened to the A16Z episode on why they invested in Instagram, formerly Bourbon, Okta, and Slack, formerly TinySpec, and why they passed on companies like Uber, Square, and FTX, I suggest you start there to get an idea of who A16Z is, you know, what they're all about, what they look for in founders, what they look for investments, and so on and so forth. But today, as with other five questions episodes I've done in the past, I look back on all the notes I took and found that you know I can put together some reasonable assumptions on questions partners from these firms would ask founders. So for founders who intend to raise capital, I think this is just a helpful thought exercise to Think about your answers to some of these questions as, you know, I believe these are some questions investors would ask, you know, whether A16Z or not, these are somewhat general questions. So it's good to think about, I suggest when you're listening to think about your startup and your answers to these questions, it'll make it a lot more interactive of an episode, I think. And it's what I do when I read these questions. So I suggest you do the same. For investors, it's good to think about the questions you like to ask founders and why. Um, maybe some of the things we'll talk about today are things you haven't thought about and now get an idea of why it'd be interesting to ask this. Maybe you can tweak your questions a little bit to incorporate some more of what the A16Z partners look for or what you want to hear from founders when they're answering your questions. So both for founders and investors, this is a really good exercise. Try to apply anything you're doing, whether you're a founder or investor, to these questions I ask kind of play along from home, if you will. Um, I think it makes it a lot better of an episode to listen to. So let's get started. So the first question I'd ask, and these are in no particular order, just the way I thought of them, as always. First question I'd ask is, why are you the person to tackle this problem? And so I'd ask this question because, you know, as, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, the founder is the primary reason for an early stage investment. Many of the investments we studied, again, like A16Z with Okta, Slack, Instagram, they were all heavily geared towards the founder, especially in instances like Instagram and Slack where they were pivots. Those are very founder reliant investments because at the end of the day, the product didn't even matter. So at the early stage, it's really important to focus on the founder. But in my opinion, it's not just enough to you know be a Stanford grad or work at Google and therefore command an investment because you're just smart and accomplished and look good on paper. As an investor, I wouldn't care how much you know in general. I care about how much you know about this industry you're pursuing. And one advantage companies have over another, especially at the startup level, is just their obsession and they're just bank of knowledge. And so the founder I'm investing in has to have just deep knowledge about the market, about the incumbents, about the customers they're pursuing, and frankly, just why they can disrupt the industry. Current A16Z partner, Chris Dixon, has a good quote that personifies this concept, um, which he calls founder market fit. He once said, quote, founders have to choose a market long before they have an idea whether they will reach product market fit. In my opinion, the best predictor of success is whether there is what David Lee calls founder market fit. Founder market fit means the founders have a deep understanding of the market they are entering and are people who personify their product, 
business and ultimately their company. And I really like that last sentence. He says, people who personify their product, business, and ultimately their company. I like that a lot because the founder is going to be the face of the company. You know, when you see Steve Jobs, you think of smartphones. When you see Elon Musk, you think of space travel. Like that wasn't an accident. That happened because they worked in their respective industries for decades before ultimately reaching that pinnacle of just perfect product market fit and worldwide adoption. And so in a winner-take-all market, as many you know, venture-backed startups compete in, the founder has to have a distinct advantage as to why they're the person to tackle this problem. You know, like I touched on earlier, maybe they're like a Teal fellow and just naturally a genius, but, and that's great for sure, but they still have to have an accession with their craft. Like when Palmer Luckey created the Oculus and became the first successful VR company after decades of failed companies trying. I mean, he was tinkering around with VR since he was a teenager and he was obsessed with it and he was adamant that he would be the one to make a successful VR company. Dozens if not hundreds of companies failed in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, but his just obsession with it and also him being just a natural born genius was essentially why that company was successful. And so speaking of Palmer Lucky, this concept of really knowing the industry you're building in is especially prescient in hard tech companies like A16Z pack companies, Anderol and Hadrian. And so current A16Z partner and leader of A16's American dynamism movement, essentially investing in companies that are good for America and keep America as a leader of the world, progressing, so on and so forth. Leader of that movement within A16Z is partner Catherine Boyle. And so she once said the following regarding founders knowing the industry they're building in and the importance of it. She said, quote, someone who came to the problem just knowing all of the intricacies of it, and all the founders of Anderil had that knowledge and expertise of here's how you have to really push the business model in order to build. You can make the same case that SpaceX had that intense knowledge of not only the technology and what needed to happen, but also how to work with the government. I think what we've noticed is that there just has to be a true understanding of the sector and what needs to change. And then a lot of evangelism of what needs to change, as you probably saw with someone like Chris Power. When he was talking about Hadrian, these are the founders that are truly evangelizing oftentimes business model change or technological change that are constantly talking about it because they are at the forefront of this change. And so this goes in to the second point of this question of, you know, why are you the person to tackle this problem? You know, not only do they have to know the industry to an extreme degree, like we just talked about, and be the face of the company, be that Steve Jobs, be that Elon Musk figure to that movement of smartphones or the movement of space travel, but they have to evangelize others to their solution. You know, this concept is especially true in hard tech companies where there are a lot of regulatory and R&D hurdles before you can even sell to your first customer. It can take years before a sale. So the challenge here is not only building the product that solves the problem, but in the case of selling to the government, you have to convince them why they need to diversify their defense spending and spend less on their you know, 70-year partnership, 100-year partnership, whatever it is, with Lockheed Martin, and more money on this disruptive upstart, Anderil, for example. But how Anderil has gone about that, trying to make that drastic change for the government, 
Enderol has become the face of the defense tech movement you know, through their revolutionary technology combined with just a loud, outspoken frustration with the inefficiency of the American defense program. Yeah, it's completely upended the defense tech industry, which went from untouchable in venture capital to a very hot space in less than a few years. I mean, if you look at Twitter or anything today, a lot of people, a lot of really smart people are pushing hard tech, deep tech companies, really trying to get that off the ground because because we're seeing the crack. You know, we saw with Anderol that it is possible to disrupt these very entrenched incumbents that work with the government. And it's because people like Palmer Lucky and Trey Stevens, you know, were really the ones to tackle this problem. And it's because they evangelized this movement about, you know, American dynamism and, and deep tech and hard tech and the rewards that come with it and really impacting your country and everyone who lives within it. You know, not just another consumer app, but like really something important to people like defense tech and making that cheaper and more efficient, saving taxpayers a lot of money. So obviously that's a virtuous thing, but it wasn't a few years ago. Feces did not want to touch defense tech, but since the Enderol was able to prove what can be done, it inspired a lot of founders to follow them and they became the head of this movement because they were able to tackle this really challenging problem. And so the final point about this question, which ties perfectly of what we just talked about, is that every founder needs to have some type of superpower. Frankly, I could be wrong. Please prove me wrong if someone can. I always like to learn. But this is where I think a technical founder can struggle. You know, being a 100x engineer, being a remarkable technical founder is certainly a superpower. But, you know, as the face of the company, you have to be excellent at selling the vision and evangelizing the mission of the company. You know, Apple would be nothing without Woz building the product and being that masterful technical co-founder, but Apple would be nothing without just Steve Jobs being the person to evangelize this movement around beautifully designed hardware. I'm not going to argue who is more important, Steve Jobs or Woz, but I'm just saying if you want to have this extreme movement for your company, you need someone like a Steve Jobs who can just Again, evangelize this movement, speak to the brand in a beautiful way that just incites so many positive feelings in potential customers and users. And I also think the engineering aspects are easier to supplement. You can have a lot of engineers working on the problem, helping one another, but superpowers around branding are very valuable and certainly something I look for in founders because that storytelling ability and ability to connect to users is just so rare and when done right is just so impactful. So I'd sort of lean towards that as a superpower in a founding team, you know, rather than just incredible engineers. Incredible engineers are great, but you know, I need someone who's going to be the face of that company and can really drive it to consumers' minds and be the company in that space. And so basically I asked this question again, why are you the person to tackle this problem? Because, you know, typically hundreds or thousands of startups have either tried, are actively trying, or will try the problem this founder is presenting. So if that's the case, you know, then there's a clear market, there's a clear value proposition for, you know, that product or that company. You know, that's not a question. What is a question is, why is this founder the one who can personify their business with an exceptional vision and 
evangelize the world, to join them in the mission. Now, that ability is a true superpower. And you know, one I suspect is possible to see through an expertly crafted pitch. We talked about this before. Don Valentine of Sequoia was very big on this, of being able to, 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 to see the founder's vision exude through an expertly crafted pitch. And I don't mean an expertly rehearsed pitch. I mean a pitch that just exudes ability, confidence, and just an incredible vision of what the new world they're building looks like after releasing their product and, and why it's beautiful for, for users. So again, that was question one. Why are you the person to tackle this problem? So question two, how big can this company get? And so I'm going to start off with this quote from current A16Z partner, Catherine Boyle, because I think it transitions well from the past section of why is this founder the person to solve this problem into this new section of, well, now that we know that, you know, how big can this company really get? And so she once said, quote, all of these companies are extremely capital intensive. Again, she's talking about deep tech, hard tech companies. And so being able to make the case that this is how things have been, but here's the paradigm shift that's happening and being at the forefront of that, that's almost table stakes for founders. We often say this about deep tech companies where there's a graveyard of companies with great technologists who spun out of universities where the technology was great, but they couldn't make the case, they couldn't tell the story, they couldn't raise enough capital to get through the valley of death. What we've seen with the founders who've been successful in these sectors is that they're just incredible at convincing people that this paradigm shift will happen. These quotes, some of these quotes finish on such a strong note. So again, I'm going to re repeat that second half of the quote. The technology was great, but they couldn't make the case. They couldn't tell the story. They couldn't raise enough capital to get through the valley of death. And so that's a really tough reality for founders, especially again, for founders of deep tech companies that, you know, you can make this incredible technology, have these masterful blueprints and, and simulations and everything, but that might not be enough to get you to a major milestone, you know, such as an IPO or large acquisition, because it's an incredibly capital intensive space just to get your product done. And it requires a lot of investment and lobbying with the government or whoever your large customers are just to release and sell your first product. So, you know, I can certainly believe in this person and I can give them money, but chances are, if I'm an early stage investor, the capital I give the company won't be enough to get them to that major milestone. You know, this isn't a company where they can take a seed in a series A and run that all the way to the IPO. They're probably going to need to raise several large rounds of private capital. So I need a lot of other investors to see what I see. So the founder has to be this huge promoter of this technology and persuade others on their vision for the future. They have to exude confidence that their company will be huge because of how revolutionary their technology is and how desperately the world needs it. Now, that has to be apparent or else these companies will fail. And so if you're listening and you're thinking, well, you know, I'm not a deep tech company. I'm a you know, consumer app. I don't need to evangelize a movement to grow to be a massive company. You know, I'm comfortable raising a round or two and getting to a few hundred million in revenue and everything will be fine. But, and I didn't really think about this until hearing this quote, I thought the same thing as I just mentioned. But if you take that route of just few rounds coasting to a couple hundred million in revenue, if you can do that, I mean, great, obviously. But 
if you take that route, you run the risk of becoming a feature. And VCs don't invest in features because they often get swallowed by platforms. So current A16Z partner, Jeff Jordan, has a great quote on this, tells a great story. It's a little long, but really interesting. He once said, quote, I think the problem is that if you build an amazing innovation, the question is, do you control the distribution or not? So Comcast has that pipe in your house. The problem is if you build TiVo, which is an amazing world-changing thing, you have three outcomes that will eventually happen. Number one is Comcast says, you know what? We should buy you. You're an amazing company. But if Comcast goes and buys TiVo, then what about Time Warner Cable and DirecTV? They're going to say, hey, we're not going to sell TiVo anymore. It's owned by our competitor. So you have this weird case in M&A where you're going to have a controlled discount because TiVo is going to lose a huge chunk of their sales from the competitor. Option two is that Comcast says, hey, you know what? Let's partner because we're the ones that have all the pipes in your homes and we're going to take 99 cents of the dollar and you're going to take one cent of the dollar. And TiVo's like, well, that's not fair. I want a better deal than that. Comcast is like, yeah, well, screw you. We're just going to go with replay TV. So you don't really have much leverage in that negotiation vis-a-vis the distributor. And then option three is basically Comcast says, that's a nice little tool you have there. We're just going to hire Accenture or a bunch of engineers to go build a crappy version of the same thing. And basically the problem is one of those three options always happens to TiVo, which is you build this amazing thing. It changes the world, but you don't control the distribution and you either get copied or you get bought in an unfair price or you get a partnership agreement, which is just really tilted out of your favor. So the lesson is don't build TiVo, build Comcast. Because if you build Comcast and you have a good product and engineering team, or you can actually create stuff, you have unlimited option value to go roll out TiVo, to change more for TiVo, and so on and so forth. And so this goes on about what we said about features versus platforms. You know, in this, in this situation, Comcast is the platform. You know, they have all the leverage. TiVo essentially inspired Comcast to build TV, TiVo-like features for themselves. You know, Comcast built on-demand. And I only heard of TiVo because of an old 80s show I watched and they mentioned TiVo. So Comcast had all the distribution and obviously wiped TiVo out completely. So that's why you need to be big as a startup. Now, VCs don't want to run the risk of a large incumbent just copying what you do if you don't have any leverage. It doesn't have to be physical advantages like Comcast had. It can be a social advantage like Instagram you know, providing a better photo sharing experience, adopting the friend group, and then securing distribution because, you know, once a social network becomes, you know, the gold standard of a friend group, it has a lot of staying power if it just continues to iterate and improve. You know, that that's a network effect like we talk so much about. And so that's why Chris Saka's description of Instagram founder Kevin Systrom's pitch, as we talked about in the last episode with A16Z, is so important. You know, Systrom was adamant Instagram would get to 50 million users and had a plan on how they get there. And as an investor, I can back that. If they do get to 50 million users, then they have a platform now. And it'd be really hard for them to get disrupted. And so basically, I need to invest in companies that have the potential to be platforms. They have the potential to own that base in the consumer's mind. They and then can go build off all those other features that they own on their platform because they control the distribution. 
because that, you know, if the company gets big enough to reach that platform level and becomes a you know, multi-billion dollar company, that gives me as an investor, as a high risk investor, a margin of safety, which sounds almost like an oxymoron in venture capital investing. But current A16Z partner, Alex Rampell, gives a good description actually of margin and safety in venture capital, which I had never really thought about before. But he said, quote, you can try to apply a margin of safety to a wild, almost hyperbolic guess of if this thing really works, I'm going to invest in things that I think can fundamentally change the world. If they can fundamentally change the world in year five, any price that I pay today is effectively undervaluing this company relative to where it is in year five or year 10. Otherwise, I wouldn't be buying this out of the money call option, but I'm getting a margin of safety, if you will, of I'm only investing in things that I think can change the world that can be massive companies in year five or year 10, end quote. And so that quote gives some good perspective on what VC investing is if you're new to learning about this field. You're buying an incredibly out-of-the-money speculative option in every early-stage investment you make. You know, you typically either lose your money on it, maybe get your money back if you're lucky. And if you're really lucky, one of those you can 100x or 1,000x. You know, there are very few in-betweens. It's usually zero, one, or 100. <laughs> and so... That's another reason why VCs only invest in world-changing companies because, you know, in a $90 million portfolio with only 30 companies, if I invest $3 million into each, I need at least one 100x company in there so I can 3x my fund, assuming, you know, all other 29 investments go to zero. But that 3x in a fund, that's only a decent fund performance. That's really not that good. You really want to be going for at least 5x. And so the chances of success in startups are so low that it doesn't really make sense for me to shoot for 10x outcomes, for me to shoot for great features. Because even though that sounds easier, you know, to build a company for 500,000 users, you know, paying 20 bucks a year, that 10x company will likely get eaten up by an incumbent as just, again, a tiny feature as the TiVo. Because, you know, the platform company, the Comcast, can just add that platform can just add that feature, a copy of that feature to their platform already with all that distribution, probably charge a lesser amount of money for it. And then that feature company eventually dies out, you know, even if it was a good business. So I have to invest in 100x, 1000x, you know, world changing platform potential companies, because then I just need one in 30 of those to succeed, you know, which is a lot more plausible for me as an investor. So essentially, I'd ask this question again of how big can this company get? Because I need the founder to just exude a world-changing vision for their company. Now, I obviously want to see some evidence to support this claim, but you know, like we talked about with the Kleiner Perkins episode, it can be insanely optimistic. I just I want someone who is going to go for it. They're going to go for that hundred X, and they can exude that feeling of confidence in me and, and make me feel like. You know, this person is the guy or girl to really solve this problem and become a platform. Because if, if I can feel that confidence in the founder, typically follow-on investors can feel that confidence too. And so that increases my chances of this company, you know, raising enough capital to get to that platform status and becoming a really successful investment for me. So founders dream big and pitch big 
or else you know investors very well might just write you off as another eventual swallowed up feature. So again, question number two is how big can this company get? So question number three, how are you reducing friction for the user? And so I was inspired to ask this question by a simple yet very important quote from current A16Z partner, Jeff Jordan. He once said, quote, I quickly became convinced early on at eBay that the key way to grow these businesses, Jeff Jordan was an early employee at eBay, the key way to grow these businesses was product enhancements, giving users additional use cases, functionality, take away friction, do whatever you can, end quote. So if you're starting a business, it has to improve the life of a user in some way. That's, that's the whole point. That's the goal. And so a great way to do that is to identify a grueling experience customers go through and provide them with an easier experience by reducing friction. An example would be E-Trade, you know, in the early 2000s, late 90s, disrupting the need to call your broker to execute a trade by now with E-Trade, just completing trades online with just a few clicks. That's a massive elimination of friction to enhance a user experience. Rather than having to get on the, the phone, wait on hold, get that vocal confirmation. Maybe it'll take days if this if your broker's busy. Now you can just go online and do it yourself in just a few clicks in a few minutes. And so, you know, not only do businesses that eliminate friction tend to be successful, but they also have the potential to expand markets. You know, as we learned about in the benchmark episode. Uber initially thought their market would be $4.2 billion because that's what the overall taxi and limousine market was at the time. But since they created a ride hailing experience with minimal friction by just you know, opening an app on your phone and pressing a few buttons rather than having to wait outside, hoping you'll see and wave down an empty cab, since they took away a lot of that friction, made it a lot easier to get a ride. They expanded their market drastically, which you know went from $4.2 billion to now Uber making $35 billion in just a year from in revenue. So, you know, eight, nearly nine X their market because of reducing friction for the user. And so that's why starting a business is so hard because the most successful ones typically reduce friction, which is typically caused by entrenched incumbents regulatory capture, or just very technically challenging problems. You know, it requires an outlier founder. And so I want to hear a compelling story from the founder of you know, what the problem is for the user currently, why there's so much friction, why there's so many frustrated users, and how they as founders can eliminate that friction and provide a better service and make it easy to understand for users. Because if they're right, then they'll likely not only capture that market, but also expand that market. Jeff Jordan, again, who we just mentioned, gives an example of how much an advantage this gives startups against incumbents, not only through improved processes, but also reducing marketing spend as a company, as the frictionless user experience sells itself, essentially. And so Jordan, Jeff Jordan, was CEO at OpenTable in the early stages, and when describing his experiences at OpenTable, he said, quote, the best models are ones that don't rely on paid acquisition. 
the best entrepreneurs have figured out hacks to get user demand at scale through a user proposition. And one of the most brilliant hacks on this was with OpenTable. The team figured out ahead of time to build a widget that restaurants could put on their own websites to empower online reservations because the typical behavior at the time was, you know, I want to go to the slanted door, a restaurant. Okay, let me search on Google for the slanted door so I can find the telephone number, go to the website. And now you see this widget that says make an online reservation. And it's like, oh, I'd much rather do that than pick up the phone and have an experience of, you know, can you hold, sir, and get back to you and then call multiple restaurants. It's just awful. And so we put it on there. And what it ended up doing was the diner would click on it and was redirected to the sign the door page on OpenTable. They would then discover, oh, I can make an online reservation at all these restaurants and they'd come back to OpenTable. Now they wouldn't go to Google. They'd quickly learn from a behavior to go to OpenTable instead. And OpenTable was getting paid by restaurants to acquire consumers. While I was there, we didn't spend a penny on demand acquisition and we're growing very nicely based on that. So the best models don't rely on paid. They figured out some other way to get that distribution. So first of all, I know that's kind of a long quote, but OpenTable is just a perfect business. I mean, if you listen to Jeff Jordan or Bill Gurley describe OpenTable, it's beautiful. And they love OpenTable. And I understand why. It's just an incredible business. But you know, to dive further into that quote, OpenTable is just simple little widget, that simple little button they put on restaurants' websites made the user experience so much better. I mean, think about that. Like, how much time does that save users? I mean, instead of having to Google the restaurant, find the number, wait on hold, figure out what times are available, hopefully have a time you can use, or else you have to just repeat that process. But OpenTable's, you know, simple little widget tells you what times are available, on what dates and turns that process into less than 30 seconds. It's just such a relieving experience as a user that OpenTable becomes, you know, one of their favorite services, one of their favorite websites. I mean, I only use OpenTable to make reservations. I'm sure, you know, many people who many people listening today use OpenTable to make reservations, and I'm sure many people who started using the product almost 20 years ago you know, still do the same, still go to OpenTable to make reservations. It's a platform that essentially is the search engine for restaurants. And again, OpenTable getting all this capture without having to spend money on demand acquisition. They didn't have to spend money on marketing because they reduced so much friction and made users so happy that they didn't have to sell users. The product sold itself. And then, you know, they tell their friends, they tell everyone they know, and it would just explode. So. OpenTable became a platform that essentially is a search engine for restaurants. And, you know, just like we talked about in the last section, I want to invest in platforms because platforms means big businesses, which means a lot of money, which means a happy investor and happy LPs. So just a great way to look for the platform is to just find a way you can eliminate tons of frictions for tons of frustrated users. So when I'm asking that question, you know, how are you reducing friction? I'm looking for the founder to have, you know, some type of unique insight about the industry that shows you know, why no one has done it before or why their unique product or service, you know, will reduce frictions for users. 
causing users to absolutely fall in love with the product. In turn, giving that business a high potential to become a platform and a low potential to ever have to spend on marketing. Much easier said than done. Those businesses are very rare. They are the gold standard, but it's definitely a really important question to ask yourself or to ask a founder if you want that company to be a platform company. So question number four, how are you tackling the cold start problem? So the cold start problem is a term coined by current A16Z partner, Andrew Chen. He writes a book about it that describes the initial problem all marketplaces have of having to get buyers and sellers on the platform to transact with one another. Not only do you need buyers and sellers, but you need enough buyers and sellers to keep the marketplace fresh or else it'll move you know, at a snail's pace and get stagnant. If you're on eBay and you're the 50th user on eBay, there's only like four things you can buy and it'll take a long time for new things to come onto the platform. You know, that's the cold start problem. How do you get that? How do you make that experience great from day one? So, you know, I need to know that the founder has thought about this problem or has some unique growth hacks to get going. And hopefully the founder has heard Tinder's solution to the cold start problem as just a masterclass of jumpstarting growth. You know, Andrew Chen, when talking about Tinder and their growth strategy, he said, quote, they tried to invite a bunch of friends off their address book. It didn't work. So what they realized was, well, Maybe we just need a bunch of people. You know, how do we get a lot of people, hundreds of people onto the app at the same time? And one of the co-founders had a friend on the USC campus that was very popular, very social person, and said, what if we throw this birthday party for this girl? And it'll just be this really amazing, really sick birthday party. And it'll be sponsored. We'll just go all out, but we're going to put a bouncer in front of the door and we're going to make sure that to enter the party, you have to install Tinder. And so the founders of Tinder you know, got a couple hundred people to go to this party. You know, all the people who were at this party installed Twitter, installed Tinder, and they didn't use the app that day. But the next morning, they all woke up and they all had this app. And they were like, oh, there's all these cute people that I hadn't talked to last night. You know, Now I can like swipe through them and I can message them and, and start that conversation. And, you know, you're just like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And then from that, they were able to take over the rest of USC. Once you figure out how to build an atomic network, which is, you know, what is the smallest network that you need that you can retain and be engaged and be functional. So they figured out that it's 500 people or so. And so once you just build one atomic network, you can build a second one and third one, end quote. So this story, I love this story. I've read it so many times. It's just genius stuff by the Tinder founders. You know, again, perfectly targeting their market, young people looking for relationships or or hookups, whatever it is, they tend to go to parties and tend to be the good looking ones. That's good for Tinder. So if you're a marketplace business, you know, you need a plan around the cold start problem. Again, starting a marketplace with no users or very few users, because again, it's not possible to slowly scale as a marketplace because it's not going to be interesting. And, you know, users will leave if the marketplace is stagnant. So then you'll keep getting new users and then they'll keep leaving and you'll just have that continuous problem. So you got to do something like the Twitter founders where you can get a few hundred people on the site at once and, you know, have some type of marketplace brewing 
but then you have to spread the word as fast as possible to get more people on as soon as you possibly can to keep that marketplace alive. So, you know, I want, I'm asking this question because I'm looking for the founder to have some unique strategy that solves this problem. Ideally, they can find, you know, a Tinder-like solution and throw a sweet party or some type of unique way to get a few hundred people on the platform at once. That can be hard. If they can't do that, hopefully they can create, you know, a really strong referral program off of their first users from their initial growth hack. And, you know, by doing so, they can create viral loops, which are essentially the catalyst of network effects. And so Andrew Chen, again, who we just described, A16Z partner, talks about the importance and kind of dynamics around viral loops. So he says, quote, viral loops are important because they are extremely scalable, free, and don't require a formal partnership. This is based on users directly or indirectly sharing a product with their friends or colleagues and having that loop repeat itself. The important point here is that loops aren't just conceptual, but you can actually measure their efficiency as well. If you can get a thousand users to invite and sign up 600 of their friends, then you have a ratio of 0.6, but that's just in the first cycle of the loop because then those 600 new users generate you know, 0.6, 60% of those new users to get 360 new users who then generate 60% off of that to get 216 users. And so now, based off that initial cohort of 1,000 users who signed up, you, know, you have over 1,500 signups from that initial base of 1,000. You have more like 2,000 signups. That's meaningful because then for every user you get through other means, you're amplifying their effect, end quote. So that's such a confusing quote, I bet, to listen to on a podcast. I probably didn't explain it well. So this is actually a good time to plug this the Substack. If you want to read along to a written version of this podcast, essentially, very similar things, you could open All Things VC on Substack and you know you can read along, help understand these quotes a little better maybe. Um, or if you prefer to read, you, know, you can just stop listening now and read the rest. I would be upset. But anyway, so viral loops. To paraphrase that quote, essentially you get a thousand users. If you have a strong referral program and they can refer 600 new people to the platform, then those 600 new people will refer you know, 60%, which means they get 360 new users who will also refer you know, 60%. So that's the viral loop. If you have a strong referral program, you can create a viral loop that just, if you get an initial strong base of users, there's that loop of referrals and new users and referrals and new users. So viral loops are obviously hard to pull off, but I think the best way to go about this is through a, you know, very effective referral program or have just ideally such an interesting app and incredible product, you know, like an open table that they just tell their friends about it. So some interesting examples of, you know, referral programs creating viral loops would be, you know, Facebook required you to have 10 friends upon signing up which, you know, encourage referrals, create viral loops because, you know, that one user now brought in 10 people and then each of those 10 people now has to bring in 10 new people so they can all have friends and use the app. Maybe some of them already use the app, so they're not bringing in 10 completely new people. But again, that's a way of just encouraging referrals and creating a viral loop. Other companies with less 
incredible viral growth, viral loop strategies like Facebook. Other companies like Uber, you know, would give free rides or ride credits in the early days for referring a friend. The best case scenario is Instagram, which essentially just exploded from day one with users obsessively telling their friends to download the app. So I really like the Tinder example here. I really like the Facebook example here. You know, those are some free and scalable and just interesting ways to build, you know, viral loops, which are really viral to jumpstart growth and again, solve this cold start problem. And so, you know, all these plans are viable. Obviously, the least amount of paid marketing, the better. But if you had to pay for marketing, I would try to pay for a very strong referral program, you know, then for just generic Facebook or TikTok ads. I mean, I don't know too much about this. I haven't like really, I, I haven't tried this with a startup of my own, but I'd assume at least with referral programs, you know, you know that user likes the product enough to want to bring on their friends. And that friend they bring on, you know, likely has similar interests with other friends. And then their friend will, you know, enjoy the product as well. So they'll bring them in because you're kind of, instead of just targeting a bunch of random people, you're just targeting friend groups. And if you can just capture friend groups and capture new friend groups, capture new friend groups, that's a very viable way to grow. So it's just a little more targeted of a marketing strategy. So, you know, if you can't grow quickly through word of mouth, you know, if you don't have that open table, incredible for friction reducing experience for users that just cause them to love the product and you know you have product led marketing i would suggest a very strong and enticing referral program so i'd ask founders you know how are you combating the cold start problem because you know ideally i can hear an entire plan about you know how they're addressing this ideally they have a really interesting tinder like plan to adopt many users at once and if that doesn't work, they have some other plans in their back pocket about referral programs because marketplace has to move fast. So hopefully founders have some follow-on marketing strategies to try to get some viral loops growing because I need them to create some type of viral marketing. It's an essential first step for a marketplace. So, you know, I need to know the founder knows that and, you know, isn't getting too ahead of their skis of, you know, we'll get to a million users and everything will be well. Because the, the worst case scenario that can happen is you know they pay for all these ads they get a few hundred users onboarded but the platform's not growing quickly enough so that experience is a poor experience for users and then they'll leave and then you have to repeat that process with a new few hundred users and so on and so forth so ideally the capital i give in this investment you know turbocharges their marketing ability and allows them to try new things and see what really works and then they can grow the app fast and enhance that experience for users you know, before it's too late. So last question today, question number five, is what's the mission? Sometimes the founder has some really inspirational story about why they're starting the business, like we touched on Natera in the Sequoia episode, starting a company because his sister had a miscarriage and he couldn't believe that happened. You know, that's obviously a very strong mission and a very strong reason to want to start a company. Yeah. Not all the time they're that, you know, inspirational and, and, and missionary, but, but sometimes they are. I don't think that's always necessary to have this super inspirational story. You know, you don't have to be obsessed with B2B SaaS and, you know, have to make this new CRM platform or, 
you're never going to be happy with your life. You know, I don't think anyone's that passionate about B2B SaaS. If they are, then just be kind of weird, but also, I guess, a massive signal to invest. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, when, when tackling you know, these really hard problems, like we talked about earlier with these deep tech companies that A16Z invests in frequently, there has to be a ferocity around the mission because these problems are so hard that you have to be like Moses-like with your mission to attract early employees, to be just as crazy as you are to fight this mission. You know, it's not just you fighting it. you got to bring other people along to fight that mission with you so you can scale. And so again, current partner, Catherine Boyle, describes her interpretation of ferocity around mission as follows. She says, quote, the thing that I always look for is something that I call seriousness. I divide it as a unique combination of capability and will where there's just a ferocity in the founder that they're going to run through walls, that they're going to get it done, where it's not just an interesting story, but it's someone you just have 100% faith is just grinding and working ridiculously hard to move mountains. Oftentimes, the story that's being told has never been done before, and this is going to be incredibly difficult to do. So if you don't believe that the person has the capacity to, to not only do that for him or herself, but also has to be able to recruit extraordinary talent who are on board with that mission. No, that oftentimes will be impossible. The thing that often is lacking in founders who may want to take on these sort of noble missions is how serious are you about the mission? End quote. So hopefully I can see this in the founder's pitch. You know, I should be able to see it in their eyes and hear it in their voices that they feel destined to complete the mission and cannot see a world without their company. And then if you can couple that passion for that mission with technical ex excellence, then you know you have a no-brainer investment. Those are the best kind of investments. You know, most founders know this and you know exude this energy. You know, it's why they're crazy enough to start a company in their first place. There has to be some type of you know mission-driven aspect to it. But you know, many founders may have not actually sat down to solidify what the mission is which can be a really important aspect. And so I'm asking this question because it's easy for a founder to just be like, oh, it's like, we really want to solve this problem. It's this big problem. It's this crazy problem. We think we can do it, but they have to be a little more specific than that. You know, I need to, I need to see if they've actually taken the time to, to hammer out, you know, what this mission is. Current A16Z partner, Martin Casado, explains why solidifying the mission early on is so important. He said, quote, it's very important at some point in time to kick everybody out of the room, sit there for three days, and then write down the very lucid, very descriptive vision of the company, like why it matters and what you're doing in a way that you deeply believe that outlines the future and outlines the why together. And then you can use that to drive everything about the company from recruiting to culture setting to early sales and marketing, to speaking to analysts, et cetera. And so I do think that in the early stages is just a crucial exercise to do, end quote. And so I think the earlier you do this, the better. You know, I understand time feels so precious and perfecting the product may feel way more important than, you know, perfecting the mission and culture of the company and so on and so forth. But 
the product will change. You know, the first product you release is going to look nothing like the last product you release. You, know, you release updates every month, maybe every few weeks, and you know, completely new features or completely new designs at times. But what will likely never change is the mission of the company. And that mission is ingrained in the first employee you hire. So, you know, if you're flippy floppy with your mission, your early employees won't align with your late employees who have a different perception of what the mission is. Your early investors will have a different perspective with your later investors on the strategy of the company you know, based on the mission. Your early customers won't really feel like they align with the later mission if you change it. They won't really understand your company anymore. So there just has to be a clear image in everyone's mind who interacts with the company, employees, investors, customers, that they understand the company through just a simple one or two sentence mission statement. And that's clear from very early on. Now, ideally, this the founders nailed this by the time I meet with him or her. Even if I'm the first investor, I want that to be nailed, that mission, because I think it's vital to solidify the culture, which is you know something you really don't want to be worrying about when you're trying to build and scale your company. So if the founder hasn't nailed this yet, you know, it's not a deal breaker for me, but as soon as the meeting ends, you know, I'd recommend the Martin Casado style of just sitting down for three days and just making that vision for the company crystal clear and ultra impactful. Document that in one or two sentences so you can send it out to every customer, every investor, every employee, everyone sees it, understands what the company does and can rally behind that mission if it's truly interesting to them. So those are the five questions I'd ask if I were a partner at A16Z. Again, based on what I've read from current and former partners. I hope you enjoyed this thought exercise and I hope it made you a little more prepared as a founder or investor. As always, like I said earlier, you can read the version of this podcast on the Substack. Additionally, you know, all my notes from this episode and past episodes, notes who never made it in any episode, you can find all of that at allthingsvc.blog. Now, if you want to read more, hundreds and hundreds of quotes about why investors invest in the companies they did, what they look for in founders, advice for founders, so on and so forth. And lastly, for any other random snippets or just thoughts that pop in my head throughout a day, you can follow me on X at Justin underscore prior underscore. And so that wraps up our dive into A16Z. Next week, you know, as I already hinted about, we're going to talk about a new firm that was founded around a similar time of A16Z and takes the cake as having one of the best investments of all time as an early investor in Coinbase. So stay tuned for that. Thanks again for listening to this episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please like and subscribe. Helps the podcast grow and I can keep doing this. So thank you in advance. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day.